Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Drug overdose deaths are skyrocketing, with more than 100,000 people dying in 2021, according to the CDC. Obtaining treatment for substance use disorders, SUDs, has never been easy, and this month in Health Affairs, a recent paper examined trends in the use of treatment services to see what, if anything, changed from 2010 to 2019. Despite an increase in insurance coverage over much of that time period and other policy changes, the results were disappointing, according to one of the authors interviewed about the findings on today's Managed Carecast. Dr. Brendan Saloner, an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, specializes in health policy, particularly policies that affect vulnerable populations, including those with drug problems and behavioral or mental health issues. For this interview, he spoke with Allison Encero, managing editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Carecast today, Dr. Saloner. Thanks for having me. In the May edition of Health Affairs, uh, coming out today as we're speaking, you and your co-authors looked at trends in the utilization of substance use disorders from 2010 to 2019. Can you tell me why you did this study and uh, a little bit about what you found before I ask you some more questions about it? Sure. So the major reason we did this study is because we are looking back at a decade where a lot has changed, some good things and some bad things. So the good thing that um, has changed is that a lot more people with substance use disorders have health insurance coverage. And we thought that maybe that would be one of the factors promoting better access to care and to medical treatment for this population. The bad thing is that we're also looking at a decade when drug overdose deaths soared to historically high rates. And if you look back, in fact, at the last year, more than 100,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. So we know that need is profound in this population. And in general, we know that people with substance use disorders are um, not very likely to get the care that they need. So really what we wanted to do is take a look and understand, is access to care getting better? Are more people using substance use disorder treatment? Your study looked at three time periods, 2010 to 2013, 2014 to 2016, and 2017 to 2019. And in the paper, you described it as roughly corresponding to the policy eras. Uh, For the listeners, can you share a little bit more about how you think about those three time periods and the relevance to the study? Sure. So just thinking about what's been changing in uh, federal policy, start with 2010. So 2010 marks uh, not only the year that the Affordable Care Act was passed into law and some of the key provisions of the ACA actually started in 2010, it also represents the first year that national mental health parity went into effect. So the Domenici-Wellstone parity law, which requires that when insurers cover mental health and substance use treatment, they do so in a way that's not discriminatory. So we thought that maybe even at the beginning of that study period through 2013, we would see the beginnings of some positive change. The middle time period, uh, 2014 to 2016, represents the period when the key insurance coverage expansions of the Affordable Care Act went into effect. And there we are particularly interested in the Medicaid expansion, 
which for the first time basically removes the categorical eligibility requirements and just allows anybody below poverty who's a U.S. citizen to enroll in Medicaid in states doing the expansion and very highly subsidized insurance coverage through the exchanges. So we thought this was also a time when we would see more people coming into insurance programs and getting better access to care. Then finally, the period after 2017 represents a period of time when U.S. Congress became increasingly interested in appropriating funds, uh, specifically targeting substance use disorder treatment. Um, we saw investments in substance use disorder treatment workforce like the state targeted response grants. Um, so we also thought during that period that we might begin to see some um, progress through those provisions. I should note that um, in that same era, we started to see some backsliding in the uninsured rate. Um, you know, during the Trump administration, um, some Medicaid coverage uh, gains started to erode and some states began um, some experiments which were not beneficial for uh, low-income adults. So it was a period with mixed developments, but overall, if you look at the sweep of policy change over that decade, it's a lot of things that we would have thought would be very beneficial to people with substance use disorders. One thing I noticed when I went through the paper again this morning, I don't think you define treatment in terms of what was considered treatment in, in this study. Was it any treatment? Was it inpatient, outpatient, medication-assisted therapy? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, um, and just to take a step back, we relied on data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. So that's a national survey of um, the population and it tries to understand um, for people who meet screening criteria in the population for a substance use disorder, how many of them are getting any kind of care? And it kind of is pretty open-ended in what that means. So it could be anything from a self-help group like um, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous to um, very intensive resource-intensive uh, services like a residential treatment program to treatment in a doctor's office with medication. And, and for our study, for our main outcome, we look at any of those treatment settings. Though I should also note people who are interested in reading the paper in further detail can find a breakout in the uh, paper where we look across different settings to understand whether we uh, see any changes in where people are going for care. But it's a, it's a pretty broad um, definition, which kind of fits the fact that when people get substance use treatment, it's a very heterogeneous experience. It can happen in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. People who were questioned in this survey, they were going to the doctor more often. They were getting more care for general medical issues, but they just weren't getting treatment um, for substance use disorder. That's exactly right. Yeah, we looked at two uh, different outcomes there. So one of them was, did you go to the doctor for any reason? So that could be, did you go to the doctor for a physical exam? Did you go to the doctor to get a chronic disease other than a substance use treatment, a substance use disorder uh, managed like asthma or diabetes? That's one outcome. And there we saw a very positive trend. A lot of people with substance use disorder who weren't going to the doctor started going to the doctor during this decade. And that tracks something we know about the general population that a lot of low income adults finally started getting access to care after they got insured through the ACA. Then when we look separately at this question of, were you going 
specifically to substance use disorder treatment, the trend is very flat overall. So there we see a lot less progress and we see a very um, disappointing fact that really it's only about a 10th of all people with, who meet screening criteria for a substance use disorder who are getting any treatment in the year. So um, there's a lot of room for improvement on that outcome. So why do you think the increase in insurance coverage overall, looking at the entire time period, why was that not enough to increase treatment? You know, the way I've come to think about this is that insurance coverage may be a necessary condition for expanding access to care, but it's not sufficient. So if you think about the different determinants of what gets someone with a substance use disorder to a treatment program, Having a health insurance card can be a really important factor, but a lot of other things have to be in place. One other thing is that you have to have a provider who will take your insurance, so that's a big deal. A lot of providers aren't in the network. Um, there has to be a provider near you who is taking new patients at all, so that's a, a real challenge, especially in rural communities. And um, the patient has to be willing to go and there we have to really look at this issue of stigma that a lot of patients are not um, right now saying that they would like to go to treatment. And I think if we dig a little deeper into that, and this is, I think, an important area for more research, one thing that we, we will see more of is that there are people who are feeling like they have no program that really understands their needs. Um, stigma is not only about um, the sort of sense that you know, it's undesirable to have a substance use disorder. It's also a feeling like there's a lot of discrimination against people with addiction issues that doctors, even if they treat the condition, may do so in a way that's not very patient-centered. So overcoming stigma has to be part of the bigger set of solutions to get more people into treatment. Do you think it's also an issue of providing treatment that is more specialized to different subgroups, some of which you mentioned in your paper. For instance, and this isn't necessarily relevant to your paper, but I didn't know, for instance, that in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, that was only for men. Women could not join, correct? Yeah, so it's 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 a lot of different dimensions that we could look at this on. You know, in terms of a equity perspective, we can look at the fact that there's a lot of programs that are not well culturally tailored, that do not um, provide services in the language uh, that people prefer or don't address people's spiritual needs or their cultural background. That's definitely an issue. I think also um, catering to uh, different populations that may feel marginalized. And the group that I think a lot about in my research are people in the criminal legal system. So people who have been arrested or in prison um, and are trying to get services in the community, there's a, that group faces double discrimination, right? Because there's not only the discrimination of having a substance use condition, it's also about having a criminal background. So, you know, there's a, there's a huge need to think about what different groups need and making sure that the services are not just formally there, but they are there in a way that really feels welcome accessible. Do you think your results are underestimated? I think you mentioned that in the paper because you couldn't capture everyone currently in prison or people on the streets who are not in shelters and that sort of thing. 
you know, um, it's it's something that I feel very profoundly about these data that we're not um, getting our arms around the full challenge. The National Survey of Drug Use and Health is the workhorse data set for understanding these challenges. I use it a lot, but it's also like, you know, looking for your keys under the street light. Um, there's a lot of things that kind of are beyond the light that we need to think about, especially people who don't answer surveys for whatever reason. Either they are not part of the recruited sample for a survey, like people who are unsheltered and living on the street, they're not going to um, be eligible to take this survey, or people who just um, are growing increasingly skeptical or unwilling to participate in surveys about stigmatizing topics. So for sure, I think that there, this is giving us a glimpse of the problem, and the problem is probably even greater than we are um, measuring in our data. Do you and your co-authors have ideas about more innovative ways that we could be providing treatment that we're not currently? Well, I've become a big evangelist for what um, a lot of people are calling the low threshold model of treatment. So it's the idea that um, treatment should be available in settings where people need it the most when they're in crisis and that it should be available without preconditions. So we do a huge disservice to people by um, trying to make them find their way to treatment programs that are not really easy to um, find, you know, either geographically or they have to, you know, work the phone. And we're asking a lot of people in crisis um, to try to find services. What we should be doing more of is providing treatment in places like emergency departments, um, through street outreach teams, um, in jails and prisons, there's just such um, untapped potential to get treatment to people who are in crisis to help them immediately um, and not trying to wait for them to sort of present themselves and make themselves known as needing services. That takes money and coordination, I imagine. Uh, it absolutely <laughs> takes money and coordination, but it's also like, um, you know, we're willing to pay for a lot of other things. And this is something that as a society, if you want to get serious about this problem, that's killing more than 100,000 Americans a year, um, we should be willing to make an investment in places have shown that you can do this. Um, we have models, they're just not being done to scale. So um, I think the money excuse only gets us so far. And your report only went up to 2019. And we know that things got a lot worse, as you mentioned at the beginning. What are your fears going forward, or will you follow up this study later to look specifically at the effects of the pandemic, or, or what comes next? Right. So the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, like so many other surveys in 2020, um, had a break in its um, survey methods. So data were collected, but not in a way that's comparable. So uh, 2020 data are out there and we're interested in them, but we um, can't really stitch them into our current analysis. That's not to say that we are not profoundly curious about what's changing. The, you know, if you're being an optimist, um, some really exciting and important developments took place during the pandemic. Um, telehealth uh, availability got a lot better. A lot of people who were getting treated in methadone programs started getting increased access to home medications. And 
we don't yet fully know what the um, overall impact of these um, policy experimentation um, has been. And a lot of it could end up turning out really well for patients. We have some glimmers in the data that would suggest that that's true. And this is true despite the fact that we have an increasingly more dangerous uh, street drug supply driven by illicit fentanyl and many more people who are overdosing and dying. So the pandemic was a really bad period for people who use drugs, but there is this sort of silver lining that I hope uh, shows up with more people getting access to services through telehealth and, and take-home methadone. Speaking of telehealth, is there something that payers and insurance companies can or should be doing to foster access to treatment? Well, the first thing to note is that telehealth laws vary state to state, and um, some states put unreasonable barriers um, in front of what is should be allowed under federal law for telehealth. So making sure that there are no um, sort of unreasonable barriers to using telehealth for these um, services, and then making sure that rates are um, comparable and competitive for providers so that they're willing to provide services through telehealth. You know, a lot of patients in this population may uh, need voice only services if they don't have, you know, like a tablet or smartphone. So allowing for some flexibility in how telehealth visits are rendered, all of these things could um, promote greater flexibility and better access to care. I don't think I have any more questions. Is there anything else you wanted to add or that I forgot to ask about the study? Well, I think that um, we covered a lot of what the study showed. I think that now the question is sort of like, so what? Um, and to me, the so what part of it is we are at the cusp of a lot of great opportunities to do things completely differently. Like I said, there are models that could be done to scale. I'm really excited about things like mobile services, um, services in jails, which are just starting to take off. Um, we really need to have a national effort focused, like doggedly focused on finding people who are in crisis and helping them. Um, there's not enough political will to get us past this last challenge. And the, um, the paradigm that we've been existing in does not you know, suit the needs of most patients. We should not accept the fact that so many people who need addiction treatment are not getting it. So I, I hope that this um, kind of research is a call to action for more people to get off the sidelines and get involved in addressing this challenge. Well, thank you so much for discussing this. I know this is a really important issue and um, I look forward to seeing your other work on it. Thanks so much, I appreciate it. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.